As Gary mentioned, we are continuing this morning in our uh, series on the kingdom parables. Jesus uses stories, similes, metaphors to talk about the kingdom of God, to tell people what it's like, both the public and his disciples. When he's addressing his, uh, the, the crowd, he compares the word of God to seed falling on different soils, but only the good soil allows it to grow up and to mature and, and, and bear fruit. He compares the kingdom of God to a tiny mustard seed that grows into this enormous tree where people can find shade and rest into yeast which works its way through 60 pounds of flour and to a man who, who sows his field with wheat at night. Uh, it, 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 he sows his field with wheat, but at night an enemy comes and sows weeds in between the wheat and the two grow up together side by side until the harvest. And then he leaves the crowds and he addresses his disciples and he talks about how the, the kingdom is, is like a treasure that a man found in a field and he was so overjoyed he sold everything he owned to buy the field to keep it or, or a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found the perfect one, he sold everything he owned just to have it. So the kingdom of God is like all of these things and all these parables work together. They're not independent of one another. They, they, they work together to paint a fuller, more accurate picture of the kingdom of God that is coming and that is present in the here and now. And then on the heels of these treasure parables, Jesus shares this final seventh parable about a fisherman's net and that's gonna be our text for today. So we're looking at Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47. This will be in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you or you can just listen as I read. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like the net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. So as you can see in characteristic fashion, Zach gave me the easy parable to preach on. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I look at the passages he assigns to me and I'm like, why do you hate me? Why do you want the congregation to hate me? A friend of mine uh, and I recently took my daughter Ember to uh, a fall festival, despite the fact it was like 90 degrees. We still like to pretend it's autumn here. So we went to this fall festival and it was really cool. They had, um, you know, horse, horseback rides and face painting and a zip line. And, and they had this thing that was essentially um, like a ball pit from Chuck E. Cheese, only instead of plastic balls, it was filled with uh, dried corn kernels. Ember called it the corn bath. And so I put her in the corn bath. It was actually kind of a neat idea. They had like shovels and stuff they could dig. And so I'm sitting and I'm watching her in the corn bath and there's a little kid right in front of me. And while I'm sitting there, this little kid starts to throw up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. And like, instead of, you know, not, not projectile, but like a high volume just coming right down his face there. So and his mom, instead of taking him out of the corn bath and moving him, she just kind of twists him so he's puking over the side of the corn bath instead of into the corn bath. And I'm like, Okay, that's a choice. And then I look over at my daughter and she's making like a full body snow angel in the corn bath. And then I look back at this kid and I look at her and I'm thinking, this is not the first incident in the corn bath. So I grab her and we run off to the next tent, which happened to be a butterfly garden, which is such a sweet idea, right? You go in, they give you little Q-tips dipped in nectar and you feed the butterflies. Um, it's hard to get a butterfly to eat the little thing that you have. Um, they're all kind of congregating in the corners of the tent because you realize, oh, oh, they're running for their lives. <laughs> you know, they're like, why are the giants chasing me with their tiny sugary sweet sticks of death? So they're all in the corners. And then so Ember looks down and what she knows is a dead butterfly. She sees a dead butterfly on the ground. And so she picks it up 
And I, I tried to like keep her moving because if you look down, it's like a real, it's pet cemetery in there, just a butterfly graveyard all over the ground. So keep her moving. Um, and she takes the dead butterfly and she brings it out to the lady who's sitting in front of the tent who is making these little like charms um, out of the wings of dead butterflies, little terrariums, little glass jar. I know it's a little morbid, but they're very pretty. So anyway, Ember hands this dead butterfly, this damaged um, little butterfly, uh, jet black, um, to this lady who's making the charms. And, and I'm looking at the charms, and they're actually pretty cool. So I'm like, babe, do you want one of these to take home? And she says, yeah, I want to take that one home, pointing to this little damaged butterfly that she just turned in. And I'm looking, and there's like perfect monarch butterflies and these beautiful purple butterflies. I'm like, babe, are you sure you don't want one of these, like, these pretty ones? They're really beautiful. And she goes, no, that one's mine. The parable of the net at its core is about separation. It's about judgment. It's about Jesus at the end of the age looking at every single human heart and saying which one is his and which one is not. It's about separation. Which fish will be kept in the vessel and which will be thrown into the abyss? When, when Jesus Christ first came to earth as man, you have to understand that the, the, the kingdom of God began to arrive on earth. It started to arrive. Heaven broke through to us in this little baby. The kingdom began to arrive. But here, here's the thing. There's more of it coming. It has not fully arrived yet. It will not arrive in its fullness until Jesus returns and he judges the living and the dead. That's, that's what the net is talking about. And it's talking about how, how, yes, the kingdom has arrived, but there's more of it still to come. And that's why, you know, that's, that's why there's evil still on the earth. You know, heaven came down, but, but there's more of it coming. When Jesus returns, when he judges every, every single human heart, uh, when he brings true justice, and when he wipes away every tear from his beloved. All the other parables, they talk about the kingdom of God as it is present in the here and now. Um, even the wheat and the weeds, which talks about judgment, still talks about these two plants growing up together until the harvest. All the other parables in this section, they talk about the kingdom of God as it is present, the already not yet kingdom of God. But in this parable, the parable of the net, he addresses the kingdom that is still to come, the return of Jesus as judge of all. So what does it say? The net, it's cast into the sea, which is the world. And the net gathers up all of the fish, which are the people, the good and the bad, and they're separated. And the good fish are placed in the vessel, which is the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And then the bad ones are thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, the parables work together. They paint this full picture of the kingdom of God. And, and this parable comes right off the heels of those treasure parables. The, the, the man finds the treasure and he sells everything to keep it. The man finds the pearl, he sells everything to keep it. And in doing so, the treasure parables tell us what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus. And the net tells us what it costs not to be one. So we're gonna to talk today about judgment. And I don't really wanna talk about it and you probably don't really wanna hear about it. And I, and I think... I think that bashfulness is a good thing, right? There's something good about us not wanting to sit in judgment on other people that should be encouraged in our hearts. But we have to talk about it because no matter how we feel about judgment, it remains a key component of our faith. And we can't really talk about our faith with credibility unless we understand it. And so we're gonna explore that today. So um, we're, we're gonna talk about it. And, and also, I don't want you to take this the wrong way because I'm not kind of encouraging you to go out and judge people. We're gonna talk about that too. That's not what I'm saying. But, but what I will say is that it's not actually kind to never talk about judgment. 
I mean, we, you know, we don't want to step on people's toes, and of course, humility is essential, but, it, but it's not actually kind to never talk about our faith. Pendulette of Penn & Teller, who's an atheist uh, comedian, I love how he puts it, he says this. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That means people who don't recruit others to their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? It's well said. Now I'm a preacher, so it should be no, no surprise to any of you that I want you to be a Christian, but what I, what I want you to understand is that it's not because I hate people who aren't. Much to the contrary, I, I, I love them. I'm called to love everyone and, 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 and I love you. And, and so I want you, I really believe this stuff. Does that make sense? I really believe this stuff. And if I believe that there is a heaven and a hell and that our choices in part will get us to one or the other, then and I didn't tell you that. I'd be a terrible person and I don't hate you. So we're gonna talk about judgment today. We're gonna talk about some of the basics of our faith and for some it will be a review for some. Some of this may, might feel like a surprise. And I wanna begin by addressing a question that I hear um, fairly frequently from either people who are just kind of flirting with the idea of faith and from people who maybe they've been followers of Jesus a really long time. And, and the question is this, why is judgment necessary? I mean, if, if Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love God and love others, and if we worship a God of grace, then why is judgment necessary? Why would he send anybody to hell? And let me, let me say up front, I am not going to be able to give you a, a full or satisfactory answer to this question in the 25 minutes or whatever that we have, um, maybe in any number of minutes. But what I can give you is Gary Abbott's email, and he loves this question. He just... <laughs> Yeah, he spent all of his marathon time just thinking about how much he wanted to answer that question for you. So just go ahead and email him, gabbitsummitconnect.org. Um, <laughs> but but I, think this, I think this question comes from kind of two places that I wanna talk about. And, and the first place is that we have a hard time reconciling. We can't reconcile the idea of a good God with a God that would allow someone, anyone, to go to hell, and, and I, have, I have wrestled with this ever since becoming a Christian, since I was in college. I've wrestled with this question. This question has come closer to breaking me of my faith than all of the pain and suffering that I've experienced combined. And I still, I still wrestle with it. I don't think I'm gonna get a satisfactory answer to this, this side of heaven, but, but one thing I did realize a few years back that really helped me, really helped my faith, even in the midst of wrestling with this question, is, is I realized, the fact that I don't want anybody to go to hell, that's actually, that's actually a desire that was given to me by God. That's God's desire. God desires that none should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. No matter how bad they are, no matter what they've done, he wants them to return to him. He wants everyone to go to heaven. He wants it more than I do. And I, I don't know why. I don't know why some won't. But it helps me. It helps me to know that God is more upset about it than I am. Second, I, I think this comes from a place of, of misunderstanding. I think sometimes we misunderstand what we mean when we say we worship a God of grace. And so I wanna clear up any confusion about that today. We talk a lot about grace in church. I mean, it is a key component of our faith. It's, it's the reason that we can be with God despite our rebellion. It's the only reason that we can be with God, no matter how bad we've been, no matter how good we think we are to the Christian grace is everything, but grace is very specific. It is a very specific, very definite thing in our faith. Grace 
may have varying definitions outside of the church, but inside of the church it has only one, the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ on sinners who repent and follow him. Might mean other things outside of the church, but we have to understand what it means for our faith. And there's one particular mix-up that I do wanna address, which is this. We must not confuse grace with tolerance. We don't serve a tolerant God. God is a good God, God is a gracious God, but he is not a tolerant God. He's not tolerant of sin. That's not what grace means. We don't, we don't serve a tolerant God. We, we serve a forgiving God. And there's a world of difference between the two. And, and honestly, we don't even want a God who is tolerant of sin. Not really, because if, we, if God were tolerant of sin, then he couldn't bring justice to anyone. He couldn't offer justice to the poor, the oppressed, the, the victims of rape and slavery and, and violent crimes and human trafficking and hate and abuse. And if God were tolerant of sin, he couldn't offer justice to anyone. But he is the God of justice and therefore he cannot tolerate sin. He, he's so holy, he, God is so holy that, that, that he cannot be in the presence of sin without the sinner just being completely destroyed. His, his holiness would kind of just consume us like fire. There would be no hope of our survival. And listen, because this is important, if God were not so holy, heaven could not be so good. You understand? If he tolerated the presence of evil in heaven, then what is there to hope for but more of the brokenness that we endure here on earth? We don't, we don't want a tolerant God. We want a good God, we want a holy God, we want a forgiving God, but not a God who tolerates the evil that destroys his children. But then of course, the, the, the really challenging reality we have to face is that no one is good enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. None of us is good enough to be good enough for God. I mean, do, do you believe that? Do you really believe? I want you to think about this. Do you really believe that nothing you can do can make you good enough for God? Do you, do you know that you are a rotten fish? Make no mistake about it. This is a dividing line in our faith. What we believe about that question actually matters. Because if I think I'm good enough, if I'm like, you know, I, I'm a pretty good person. I, I'm good to my wife or my husband. I'm generous. I, I support some kids in Africa. Like, I'm, a good, I'm certainly not bad enough that anyone would have to die for me. I mean, I'm, I'm good, right, guys? If I think I'm good enough, why would I ever put my faith and trust into a savior? I wouldn't because I don't, I don't need one. You understand, we, we, we're not, we don't do a very good job at assessing our own strengths and weaknesses, at assessing our own needs. I think we're just bad at it as human beings. There was a survey done um, with a teaching faculty at the University of Nebraska, and these teachers were asked to rate their teaching ability against their peers, so other teachers at the same school that they knew. Uh, and, and, and the survey found that 90% of the faculty rated themselves as above average. Just think about that, right? This is mathematically impossible. 90% of a thing can't be in the top 50%. Nearly 70% rated themselves in the top quarter of their peers. Um, we're not good at this. We're not good at it as a species. There was another one that I was reading about. Uh, it was a survey of students in Sweden and the United States that asked them to rate their driving ability over several dimensions like safe versus unsafe, considerate versus inconsiderate. 
In the US sample, 93% of students said that they were above average drivers. Well, that's not true, <laughs> you know? 30, incredibly, and this part really got me, 36% said they were still above average drivers even if they were texting and driving. Now listen, if you're texting and driving, you are above average at one or two things that I will not say in a church. Neither of them is driving, okay? We're not good at this. We, 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 we tend to believe that we're better than we really are. We, we maximize the sin of others, we minimize it in ourselves. You, you may be a nice guy, okay? I'm not arguing with that. You may be a great guy. You may be the best guy, but, but have you ever been selfish? Even a little. Have you ever gossiped? Even in the form of a prayer request. Have you ever lied? Even to spare someone's feelings? I mean, have you, have you always done the, the, the right thing immediately without delay, without any hesitation? In other, in other words, are you perfect? Have you lived a perfect life? Not just a good one, a perfect one. Because if not, you will not survive the presence of a holy God. The little bit of guilt in you, no matter how small, it will go off like the theft alarm at the pearly gates. That little bit of guilt will not be allowed into heaven. How could it be heaven if it were? I mean, that, that's why judgment's necessary. How could, be there, how could there be hope for the poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the victimized if God did not evict all wickedness from his coming kingdom? The, the, the wickedness inside of us that makes us hurt one another? The wicked systems and structures that institutionalize things like poverty and greed, none of that can be admitted. It, that would not, that could not be heaven. You understand? You can't be just a little bit sinful any more than you can be like a little bit pregnant, right? You either are or you aren't. There, there is sin and then there is the complete and total absence of sin. And there is a gulf impassable between the two. Last time my mom was in town, she bought my daughter Ember um, a glitter pumpkin, uh, which really surprised me because I didn't think my mom hated me. Um, <laughs> I will be 80 years old and still vacuuming orange glitter out of our carpets. It's just, it never goes away. It is, it's the Florida cockroach, you know? It just, it's always, the, you may not see it, but it's always there, just making its way toward your face. There's orange glitter on everything right now. It's just everywhere. And, and even if I devoted like days and weeks to cleaning, I would still not find all the little nooks and crannies where it's hiding. It's, it, our, our house will never be clean again. Our only option is to buy a new house, right? And, and, and even the cleanest people among us, kind of spiritually speaking, even the cleanest people among us, the, the ones who devote their entire lives to, to getting the sin out of the house, to following the rules, they can never get into all the nooks and crannies where it's hiding. Their only option is to buy a new house. A, a, a price, a ransom had to be paid for our sins. So God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death our sins deserve to pay the price for us. In fact, Jesus is the only fish that is worthy of being sorted into the vessel. There was a gulf impassable between us and God and Jesus laid his body down as the bridge that we walk across. There is no other way. There's no other way. Guys, why would God send his son to die if there was another way? 
I mean, if, if you love someone who's terminally ill and, and, and the doctor said, listen, they'll get better if you do one of two things. Either you can eat only kale for the rest of your life or you can kill your firstborn. Oh my goodness. You, you probably would hate eating kale on kale sandwiches forever, but you would do it gladly because nothing is worse than losing a child. Why would God send his son to die if there was any other way? There, there's no other way. And maybe that sounds exclusive and maybe it sounds unkind, but it is precisely because God will not tolerate sin that his children will not have to tolerate it in the kingdom that is to come. And it is precisely because God will not tolerate sin that, that, that the abused and the oppressed have hope for a future where these sufferings no longer exist. Now, parenthetically, I, I want to be clear that I am not advocating for you to go out and be intolerant of sin in other people. God is not tolerant of sin, and in our pursuit of imitating him, maybe we think we should not be tolerant of sin, but we have to be very careful here. Because in scripture, we are rarely called to judge the sin of our brothers and sisters in the church. We are almost never called to judge people outside of it. Should we tell them the gospel? Of course, should we invite them in to know Jesus? Absolutely, but, but, but never imagine for a second that, that we're the ones who are gonna determine who's a bad fish and who's a good one. That is God's office and we should never aspire to it. Now, that doesn't mean we protect everyone from the reality of judgment. No, we, we have to talk about it if we, if we wanna talk about our faith, but, but we need to be clear that we are not the ones pronouncing judgment. Remember, God, God expressly allowed the wheat to grow up with the weeds. That was his decision. God calls us to bear with one another. Ephesians 4, 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. God calls us to make an allowance for the faults of others. Colossians three thirteen. make an allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Yes, we should be intolerant of sin, primarily in ourselves. But in other people, that's God's job. And if we, if we want to condemn other people, if we like, gosh, we take our lives in our hands. Bruner writes, the eagerness to crush others is the hallmark of the satanic, him who loves to steal, kill, and to destroy. God, God is not tolerant, God is forgiving, which is so much better. And while we should not tolerate sin in our own lives, we imitate God best when we forgive it in the lives of others. Last thing I wanna talk about, and then we can be done with this. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's worth pointing out that this parable was given to the disciples not to the general public. And so this, this preview about the net and the, and, and the separation, it's not meant to be a warning to all those unbelievers out there that they need to turn from their wicked ways or be cast into the abyss. This was given to the, to the disciples. And what's the point of giving this parable to people who already profess to follow Jesus? Well, the point is that not everyone in the church is actually a Christian. You remember the parable of the sower? The seed falls on the path, it's gobbled up. The seed falls amongst the weeds, it's strangled. The seed falls in the rocks, it's scorched. The seed falls on the good soil and it grows up. So what is that? Well, that sounds like one in four Christians is a Christian, right? I mean, not really, but, but you, you understand what I'm saying. I'm the only person in my house who drinks coffee. Uh, my husband doesn't care for it. And so on the weekends, I'll brew a pot of coffee in the morning and I'll just kind of nurse that same pot of coffee all day. Even if it gets cold, I'll just heat it up in the microwave. 
Um, and we have this fancy coffee maker that we got for our wedding in 2012. And by fancy, I mean it does the exact same thing as a regular coffee maker, but it has a stainless steel carafe, so fancy. So I, I was, uh, this couple weekends ago, I was brewing coffee or I was working on my pot of coffee over the course of, of the morning and afternoon, and it was probably early afternoon, I was pouring the last little bit of coffee out of this fancy carafe into my cup, and, and some little lump of something, maybe like some coffee grounds or whatever, kind of, I see it come out of the carafe and go into the cup, so I set the carafe down, and then I look in the cup, and this lump surfaces, and then I see that the, the lump is squirming, <laughs> and, um, and it has, you know, six little legs and two little wings and I realized with horror there is a cockroach in my coffee cup. Yeah, and the trouble is I don't know how long it was in the carafe. This is my third cup. <laughs> I know this is the stuff of nightmares for some of you, I'm sorry. Uh, it looked like coffee, smelled like coffee, tasted like coffee, but it was roach juice the whole time. In, in the parable, of the wheat and the weeds, God, Jesus teaches that God has allowed the, the righteous and the sinners to grow up together, right? Side by side in the church. And, and, and the weeds are indistinguishable from the wheat until the harvest. Not everyone in the church is necessarily a follower of Jesus. They may look like one, they may sound like one, but only God knows what's on the inside. Only God knows the heart. And this parable was given to the disciples because Jesus, doesn't want us to go the same way as the Pharisees. Remember, they took their salvation for granted. They, they thought, God has to love me because I'm a child of Abraham. God has to love me because I follow all the rules. Jesus is reminding us, guys, the wise believer will not take their salvation for granted. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, but, but this parable, read rightly, should inspire holy fear, which is a good thing. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the wise believer will reflect on their lives. When's the last time you reflected on your life? I mean, really like turned everything off, put the phone away and just reflected. The wise believer will reflect and ask questions like, am I cultivating good soil in my heart? Is my heart fertile ground? Am I growing? among the weeds, are they becoming more wheat-like or am I becoming more weed-like? Do I love Jesus so much? Do I treasure him so much that I would give up everything else I value to follow him? In other words, do I love God and do I love his people? And, and, and we know none of us can earn God's forgiveness. We know that none of us are worthy, but while grace is opposed to earning, it is not opposed to effort. Jesus wants both faith and love. And yes, only faith saves, but only love proves that faith to be genuine. Our salvation, while it is absolutely a gift of grace through faith alone, our salvation, our saving faith, will produce fruit. Is there fruit in your life? Do you see it? And the Bible spells out what it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Is there fruit in your life? And if not, are you staying connected to the vine? Have you ever seen a, a, a tree 
that's been planted too close to a driveway and it's pushing up the driveway and cracking the concrete uh, and breaking rocks apart and stuff. You would if you came to my house because we have that there. Um, Concrete is harder than tree root. But when those roots are attached to a healthy, thriving tree, they will continue to grow so much so that they will push past obstacles made of stronger stuff than they are. When you're connected to the vine, you can't stop from producing fruit. So, so please understand me, I'm, I'm not telling you to try to like squeeze out more fruit from a dead branch, that's a terrible idea. All you're gonna get is a raisin and no one really likes raisins, right? It, they don't, it's like let's embalm this grape, that'll be a good idea. Our, our problem is that we neglect our branch, we neglect our branch and then we try to produce fruit in the heat of an argument or when someone hurts us, or when we hurt someone else, and then instead of a genuine apology, all I can muster is, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, Rob. That's not love. That's not faithfulness. That's not kindness. That's, that's dried fruit, and nobody wants to eat it. So I'm not saying squeeze out more fruit. I'm saying, I'm saying tend your branch. Tend your branch. Make sure it's connected to the vine that gives life, because when it is, the fruit will come out of you all by itself. It's like that tree root pushing on that concrete. You can't keep it in. Throughout my research for this sermon, I have just found myself sweating, uh, which is terrible because I switched to natural deodorant and it's a real crapshoot, y'all. Like, just, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it works. But I found myself sweating when when I think about things like, Am I willing to give up everything that I hold dear in order to follow Jesus? Do I see fruit in my life and I immediately feel inadequate? I feel like a bad fish. And I'm guessing some some others do too. And as I said, you know, there's a holy fear that's good. It's it's good to remember that we're creatures and that God is so holy that that it's appropriate for us to tremble in his presence. But my intention today isn't to make us afraid. I I, I don't wanna make us afraid. I want us to wake up. I don't want us to be afraid, I want us to be awake. Awake to our sin, awake to our need, awake to his grace because there is an enemy who will tell us over and over again that that, that, that there's always more time. You know, there's always more time to pray, there's always more time to reconcile, there's always more time to serve, there's always more time to repent. He will whisper this to us and those whispers will lull our faith to sleep. But this past September, when I had my birthday, I became one year older than my older brother Jason was when he died. A year older than my big brother. I mean, guys, what time do we think we have? Death will come for all of us, and it may not come as abruptly for me as it did for my brother, but it will come all the same, and the enemy does not want me awake to that reality. Stay awake, stay awake so you can tend your branch. Listen, even if it's sick, even if you're sitting here and you feel how dry it is inside of you, listen, it will come back to life if you attach it to that vine. But whether we do or we don't, we will all be gathered into the net in the end. We will all endure that final separation, but if you're connected to him, guys, we, we have a savior who looks at that struggling 
damaged fish in the hands of the fishermen and says, that one's mine. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that even though we could do nothing to earn your favor and grace, you didn't leave us alone in our sin. You didn't leave us alone in our need that you came to rescue us even when we denied you, even when we are the people who crucified you with our own hands. Lord, we don't deserve you. We don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve your goodness because we are not good enough, but Lord, you are so good that you make us holy. Thank you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here today who has never taken that step of faith, who's never allowed your grace to permeate their heart, who's never held on to you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would help them to take that step today. Lord, I pray for those of us who are your followers that we would recognize the urgency of the coming of your kingdom, that we would not be afraid to share the gospel with other people, not because you know, we don't wanna make it awkward, but because we love them, because we know that there is hope, that there is goodness, that there is eternal life, and that it's held within your hands. Lord, help us to, to recognize that urgency and to stay awake. Lord, help us to tend our branches, help us to remain connected to you, so that no matter how far we stray, no matter how much we are overpowered by our own sin and fallenness, Lord, we can come back home. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.